So my topic is, is free will and illusion. And it was actually Caleb who proposed this to me. I don't know on who's, who's, um, if it was your idea or somebody else's idea. But anyway, when he, when he did propose it to me, he said, many who attend our events have been curious about how to understand free will in a culture that seems to deny it. Okay. Indeed. There's kind of a paradox there, isn't there? On the one hand, our culture assigns, I think it's clear, assigns a high value to many types of freedom. Right? Freedom of movement, freedom in your personal relationships, right? freedom of expression, freedom to pursue happiness in whatever way you want, all sorts of freedoms. Right? But I think that's quite right, what, what Caleb said. Our culture kind of seems prone to deny altogether the, the freedom of the will. Right? I'm not really sure why that is. Maybe there are several reasons. Maybe a very simple one is that free will goes hand in hand with, with personal responsibility right? to the extent that how you act depends on your own free will, you're responsible for it. And we tend to think about bad things, right, in that context. When you do something bad, right, if, if you're responsible for it, then you are to blame for it. And blame, of course, is not a very pleasant thing. But I mentioned that. I mentioned responsibility and blame. I'm thinking of a, of a certain speaker, a contemporary speaker, a popular one, a very popular one, if, if YouTube is any indication, who argues very strenuously against the existence of free will. His name is Sam Harris. I don't know if anybody's, have you heard of Mr. Harris? He gives up a whole bunch of arguments against free will. I'll mention just one of them later on in the, in the lecture. Mm, but one of the things he spends a lot of time doing, in addition to giving arguments against it, is explaining why we really should be glad, we should prefer to believe that there's no free will. And the, the reason is precisely that. If there's no free will, then no one is to blame for what they do. And he says, this is, this is a comforting thought, you know, not only because you know, I'm not to blame for what I do, but also kind of you know, less egoistically, right? I can't blame other people for what they do. Right? They can't help it. They're not free, they can't help it. And so if I can't blame them, then I can't get angry with them. Right? I can't be disappointed at them. I can't be offended by what they do. I can be much more at peace with people. I can see that they really can't help what they're doing. Okay? So he's saying that the belief in free will, that kind of leads to conflict. Well, there may be some truth in that. Well, there may be some truth, but I, I, I'd like to say two things about, about what he's saying there. Mm -hmm. The first is, if it's true that without free will, there's no blame, it's also true that without free will, there's no praise. Right? To deny free will is to deny responsibility not only for the bad things we do, but also for the good things. Right? 
if I can't be angry at people, I can't be grateful to them either. When somebody is nice to me, it will be not because they choose to be, but because they can't help it. You know, in fact, if, if Aristotle is right, to deny free will is to deny the very possibility of real friendship between people. He makes friendship a matter of free choice. Absolutely. Okay. But I'm not going to go into that now. That's another topic. <clears throat> but the other thing I'd like to say is that it's rather curious, I think, that Mr. Harris should spend so much time trying to persuade us that it's better to believe that free will does not exist rather than to believe that it does. He's speaking as though we had a choice about what we believe. Now, I think we do, right? but that's not very consistent with the thing that he wants us to believe, right? namely that we don't have free choice. Well, I suppose he could answer that if he does go around saying those things, it's because he really can't help it. So we can't blame him either. Anyway, that's all I want to say as, as a sort of an introduction. What I really want to do in the rest of this talk is just one thing. I want to try to delineate a fairly precise concept of free will. Okay? I think um, if people had a clear concept of it, they'd be much less likely to deny that it exists. And in any case, we should be clear about what we're affirming or denying, you know. Of course, this is a very short session for such a, it's a huge topic, really. And so we'll do what we can, okay. But, but uh, I think we can do something. Throughout, as, is, as you might expect, I'll be drawing on the thought of Thomas Aquinas. My presentation is in two parts. First, I want to go over some, some negative things. That is, things that free will is not, or that don't pertain to free will, even though you might think that they do. I want to set aside some things, some kind of misunderstandings that might be associated with the idea of free will. So always as, as Thomas, as St. Thomas conceives it. And then in the second part, I'll try to set, get across what I think is kind of the, the real core of his teaching, the positive core of his teaching, his concept about free will. And then right at the end, I'll just very briefly, I'll, I'll make a couple of remarks about one kind of big, more theoretical obstacle to the concept of free will or to the recognition of free will. One I think that's fairly common today. And then after that, we can have some, some discussion. So first, here are some things that do not belong to Thomas's concept of free will. First, it's very important. He doesn't think our will is free about everything. It's not. That's really important. By the will, what do I mean? The will, I just mean our capacity, the capacity that human beings have to want things that we think are good somehow, to desire those things, to be inclined to move toward those things because we think they're good. 
And in the same way to, to recoil from things or shun things that we think are bad somehow. That's all I mean by the will right now. Okay. But under that concept of the will, there's at least one thing for St. Thomas that we have to want. We can't help it. We really can't help it. We're naturally determined to want it. And that's what he calls happiness. Everybody wants to be happy. Can't help it. Doesn't matter. Whatever you do, whatever you say, you want to be happy. What does it mean to be happy? It means to have the total good. To have total goodness, all goodness. To have everything that you can desire. To have, to really... It's a situation which that leaves nothing to be desired. That's happiness. And we all want that. We may not be very, be very clear about what it is, but that's another issue. And there's also something that we cannot want. Something we have to shun. We can't help it. And that's the opposite of happiness, which he calls misery. It's impossible to want misery. We may want things that end up making us miserable, but that we're not thinking that that's why we're doing it. Now, this might seem like it's a limit or a constraint on our free will, the fact that we have to want happiness and we can't want misery. Wouldn't we, wouldn't we be even freer if we were not determined to want anything or to shun anything if it were just totally wide open? Well, not in Thomas's view. Thomas sees this desire, this non-free desire, this necessary desire for happiness, he sees that as the very motor that drives our free will. It's kind of what I call the, the master desire. And it's that desire which gives us a kind of mastery over all of our other desires. And that's our freedom. The desire for that total goodness is what enables us to really determine ourselves actively to decide for ourselves about all partial goods, all limited goods. And those are the domain of free will. That's the domain, that's the field of free will. If we didn't have that determination to total goodness, we wouldn't be free because we would be totally passive. We would be slaves, really slaves driven by the urges of the moment, like the beasts who are not free. I'll go more into this in the second part of the lecture, how this works, this self-determination. But I really want to stress this idea that this, there's this desire that's prior to all our self-determination and is really at the root of it. So I don't think it's a question of being free about everything. Another thing that free will is not is power to act at random or for no reason. No doubt we do a lot of things for no reason, on the spur of the moment, on a whim. And in a sense, we do those things freely. We're not determined to do them, but we don't really determine ourselves to do them either. We could, but instead we only sort of let ourselves do them. We're passive about them. Free will is something active. That's the point. 
free will is active. To have free will is, again, it's to be one's own master, to be in command. That's the idea. What does that activity consist in, the activity of free will? First and foremost, the real core of it, the real heart of it, is the act that Thomas calls electio, the act of choice. That's where free will really shows itself, is in choice, making choices. What's a choice? Thomas gives us a really simple, really easy formula for what he's good at that, for, for what a choice is. He says, to choose is to take one thing, refusing another. Later, I'm going to look at that, that formula more closely. Now, my, my, what I want to stress right now is that I think it's obvious choices have reasons. Right? When we take one thing and we refuse another, we do it for a reason. We do it because the one seems better than the other somehow. That's why we choose it. That's our reason. We use that reason in making the choice. We apply that reason to our, to our behavior, to our conduct. Now, I'm, why am I saying this? I stress this because sometimes today, the question of free will is treated as if it were about a kind of power of doing things for no reason. And the result of treating it that way is that if it turns out that the things we do for no reason can be explained in some other way, without an appeal to free will, then people draw the conclusion that there is no free will. There's no grounds for speaking about free will. Now here I'm talking about one of the arguments against free will that Sam Harris sometimes appeals to. He cites an experiment that was conducted in the 1980s by a scientist named Benjamin Libet. Maybe you've heard of that, the Libet experiment. Has anybody heard of that? It's kind of famous. It became famous because it seemed to offer kind of hard evidence that the things that we think we do freely are really determined by unconscious processes in our brains. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of the experiment for a very simple reason, that in recent years, scientists have come to realize that as evidence about free will, that experiment was not very well conceived. It took for granted, it simply took for granted part of the thing that it was claiming to show. It took for granted that those processes in the brain were causes of the actions whose free performance or unfree performance was in question. So it was kind of begging the question. Okay. But what interests me about that experiment is not the fact that it's been debunked. It's been debunked, but that's not the point. I would say that the experiment didn't have anything to do with free will in the first place. The actions that they were focusing on to see whether they were free or not were things that people do at random and for no reason. They were things like bending your finger at random intervals, at irregular intervals, just whenever, you, whenever it occurs to you, right? or pressing a button, whatever. Totally, very simple and utterly meaningless bodily movements. Right? Now, we could make choices about those things, of course, but usually we don't. We don't make any choices. Why? Because they're too trivial. We don't bother to figure whether it's better or, or worse to do those things. 
I think a scientist should know better than to look for free will or the absence of free will in things like that. That's not where it shows itself, if it shows itself. So from now on, I'm going to be talking about free choice. Not free will, but free choice, because that's, that's the free thing for Thomas. Choice. That's what makes other things free, the connection with choice. So a third point um, connected with the one I just mentioned is that acts of free choice are not uncaused acts. They're not acts that don't have a cause. That's not what it means to say that they're free. They always have reasons, and they always have causes. Usually they have several causes. The reasons themselves are a sort of cause of the action and of the choice. What is a cause? A cause is a cause of a thing is another thing upon which that thing depends, upon which the existence, the being of that thing, its being what it is, depends. That's, its, that's a cause of it, right? Well, the being of a choice, the existence of a choice depends on a lot of things. It depends on the chooser, obviously. If the chooser doesn't exist, his choices won't exist either. It depends on the chooser's desire for happiness. All of our choices somehow are in some way ordered toward happiness, somehow. And there are, usually, there are always many factors influencing the reasons that we have for our choices. And those are causes of the choice. For example, suppose you choose to stop studying and to go get a pizza. Why? Because you're hungry. Well, your hunger is a cause of the choice, obviously. Your hunger makes eating a pizza seem better right then in some way, than studying, right? It's that simple. And maybe you choose this pizzeria over that pizzeria because you got some advice from somebody about the pizzerias in town. Okay, so the hunger is a cause, the, the advice is a cause of your choice. This is, the fact that choices have causes is not incompatible with their being free. Sometimes people think that, that it is. What's incompatible with freedom is being determined by the causes, right? A thing is determined by its causes if the causes make its being as it is necessary. Right? Or in other words, they make its being otherwise, its being not as it is, impossible. So you choose to eat because you're hungry. Right? Does that mean that you're being hungry makes your choosing not to eat impossible? Well, obviously not. In fact, you might choose not to eat precisely because you're hungry. We're in Lent now, the Catholics, right? You might do it as a penance. I'm hungry, so I'm not going to eat. Or you might do it just to prove that you can do it. I can go without eating, even when I'm hungry. Or for whatever, you might have all kinds of reasons. The power of free choice is a power to determine one's own desires and actions. A choice is such a determination, right? and it's you who make that determination. That's the idea. If it were determined by its causes, it wouldn't be a choice at all, because you can't decide what's already decided. Right? But not all causes determine. 
That's the point. A fourth thing that mm, free choice is not, it's not incompatible with a good deal of predictability. To say that our choices are free doesn't mean that they're totally unpredictable. They don't have to be unpredictable. There's a lot of predictability in human behavior. We know that. Advertisers know that. Okay? Politicians know that. Why? Because one reason is that many of the influences on our choices are fairly predictable. Right? The physical world, the human world, our own makeup, our bodily makeup, our psychic makeup, they're pretty stable right? on the whole. You know, St. Thomas even thought that astrology could be successful in predicting the, the, the temperaments of people born at different times of the year. He thought that. He thought that because he thought the movements of the heavenly bodies, the sun and the stars, and all, exercise a lot of influence on our bodies. And our body, he thought our bodily constitution has a lot to do with our temperament. Today, we might say it's a matter of genetic endowment or early upbringing or climate or whatever. I don't know. Right? But the point is, he, he thought that people's behavior could be fairly predictable because people tend to act in accordance with their temperaments. They tend to. Right? For example, irascible people, people who get angry easily, tend to choose things that satisfy their anger. That's the tendency. But he insists that our temperaments do not determine our choices. Back to that. We can reflect on our temperaments, and we can decide that it's better to resist them. I can say, you know, I'm kind of irascible. Maybe I should work on that. Maybe I should control my anger or try to change that somehow. Okay. And even as regards astrology, Thomas, he, he quotes... He gets a quotation from the great ancient astronomer Ptolemy, who says, the wise man dominates the stars. So he's above, we're above it, or we can be after all. Okay. So I'm not suggesting that you go and study your horoscopes. That's not the point with, with, uh, with that reference. So our choices have some predictability because, mm, because of those influences and all, and also because when we make choices, in response to certain influences, those very choices influence our future behavior. Right? They create habits, right? habits of choice. Right? Good habits, those are called virtues. Bad habits are called vices. And those make up what a, what's called a person's character. Right? And it's hard to make choices that go against your character. That's not easy to do. Right? But even that is possible. Even character doesn't determine your choices, absolutely. Right? People have done that. They've gone against their character. There are a lot of cases of that. It doesn't determine our choices. Of course, speaking about virtue and vice brings us back to the topic of responsibility, especially moral responsibility. Our power of free choice brings with it the drama of moral good and evil, right and wrong. But here's one other thing I think it's, this is important. Free choice is not only, and not even primarily, or essentially, a power to choose between moral good and moral evil. We tend to go straight there. Think about that, because okay? it's important. Okay? But 
The power to choose evil for St. Thomas is not absolutely essential to free choice. Right? In fact, he thinks it's an imperfection of free choice, the fact that we can choose evil. Because it's basically the possibility of not using the light of our own minds as fully as we could in making our choices. That's complicated. That Explaining that is kind of complicated. And, that's, and for that very reason, I always suggest that when we get into the topic of free choice, we shouldn't go straight to the issue of good and evil, morality. Take that up later on, further, further down. I'll, I'll say a little more about it later, but start with things that are all morally acceptable, morally okay. okay? Those aren't trivial. That doesn't mean they're trivial. You know, it's like, it's things like the power to choose one career or another, or to choose one home or another to choose a spouse or a friend. That's pretty serious. Right? But we're not talking about good and evil there. Right? Think about those kinds of choices. So to sum up, I, there are these five things that free will or free choice is not. It's not a power to choose absolutely anything. Right? We can't choose misery. It's not a power to act at random or for no reason. It's not a power to produce uncaused acts. It's not unpredictability. It doesn't imply unpredictability. And it's not essentially or not primarily a power to choose between moral good and evil. That's not the essence of free choice, even if it's there for us. Okay, that's the first part. Second part. What free will is, the power to make a choice, what does that consist in? I want to give just a very simple sketch of what I think Thomas's concept of free choice involves. I mentioned earlier, I mentioned that formula, right? He says, taking one thing, refusing another. So a choice is kind of a, it's kind of a two-pronged act, right? It, it relates both to the thing that you choose and to the thing or the things, maybe, maybe there's many of them, that you refuse or that you reject. Right? We could also call it a decision. It's a decision, right? You know, decision, etymologically, the word decision means like a cutting off. Right? You cut off one alternative and you take the other. But Thomas says that the will, insofar as it's free, it determines itself. It determines itself insofar as it adheres to either this or that. It takes this and refuses that, or it takes that and refuses this. Right? So it's a self-determined act of will. Self-determined inclination, that determination, that cutting off one thing from another. How is it that we're capable of that? Well, he thinks that I think there's, there's two fundamental factors. We can boil it down to two things. One is the power to make comparisons. We can compare things using reason. Right? Before we make a choice, typically we engage in what he calls deliberation. Right? We survey the field, we identify the alternatives, we gather up the pros and the cons, and we compare them with each other. When we finally choose one, it's because there's something about that one that makes it seem better than the others. Right? That's our reason for the choice. 
We always choose for a reason. That's really important. So one thing that's essential to free choice is the power to make comparisons. That's not the only thing, though. Right? Because a lot of comparisons, in a lot of comparisons, the result is necessary. It's predetermined. Okay? In certain kinds of comparisons. If I compare the number three with the number six as to which one is bigger, well, there's only one answer. Okay? It's the number six. That's okay. There's only one possibility. So it takes the freedom of choice involves more than just comparison. When we deliberate about things, practically, three and six is a, is an, is a theoretical thing. Yeah. The mathematics, mathematicians worry about that. That's not practical. Right? We're talking about human action, human conduct. When we deliberate, we're not comparing things only as to their size. That might be a factor in our deliberations, in our choices, how big the thing is. Sometimes that makes a difference. But we're, what are we basically asking? We're asking, we're asking which alternative is better. Hmm? Not which one is bigger, but which one is better. We're comparing things as to their goodness, hmm? as to their desirability. Hmm? And that means we're looking at them from the point of view of that master desire that I talked about. We're looking at them in some way, in the background, we have our happiness, we have total goodness in the perspective somehow. Okay? And goodness, the point is this, for St. Thomas, goodness is something really huge. Okay? It comes in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. Right? It's a lot bigger than size, if I can put it that way. Okay? So size might be a kind of goodness, you know, the right size of something. But... He's, his phrase is very simple. His phrase is, bonum est multiplex. The good is manifold. There are many forms of good. Many, it comes in a myriad of forms. You know, just think of all the things that you could call good. There's a good deed. There's a good, a good pizza, right? good music. You make a good guess. Right? This is a good... Anything can be good. Right? There's all... There's, it's, you can't even count them, okay? The kinds of goodness that there are, the ways of being good. Okay? Even negative things can be good, okay? Heat is good, but if there's too much heat, you want to turn it down. You want to have less heat, and that's good too, okay? Too much of a good thing is not good. Goodness comes in many forms, and the things that we make choices about, the concrete practical things that we make choices about have many forms in them. Right? We can compare them from many points of view. That's the point. This has to do with the freedom of choice because what does it mean? It means that we, if we have alternatives, if one alternative is better in one way, that may be true, but the other alternative may be better in another way. One has one kind of goodness, but the other is outstanding in a different kind of goodness. Right? In fact, I think that's always the case when, we, when we've got a choice before us. Right? The only thing that's better in every way is the total good, is happiness. There's no way in which that's not better. Okay? But that's not a matter of choice. Okay? Give me, I'll, I'll give you a really simple example. Suppose I could, I could use a car. I, could, I need a car. Right? Here's a car. 
It's fast and it's sleek and it's powerful. Okay? It's, it's a glamorous car. It's a great car. But it's also really expensive. Okay? Here's another one. It's very economical. It works. It'll get me where I'm going. But it's kind of clunky. So I could afford the glamorous one, but not so easily. It would cost, you know. And I could put up with my friends making fun of my clunky car, but I, would, I don't really like that either. So it's not an easy choice. Now, mm, I might find the choice so hard that I decide to just keep on deliberating. I look for other features. Maybe I look for another car. You know, whatever. I could do that. But that might leave me in the same position. What I, what I end up with is something that's good in some ways, but not so good in others. Right? Neither is an absolute winner. And I don't really have to go on deliberating either. I could make the choice right now with these two cars in front of me. And for Thomas, that's how choice works. The alternatives don't decide for us. They present us with reasons. The comparison enables us to make a choice, but it doesn't determine the choice. Nothing does. The choice itself is a new determination. I make that decision. I'm going to take the clunky car. It's I who decide that actively. I've got a reason for it but I still have to make the choice. Now, you might say, look, if all I've got before me is this, I've got the glamorous but expensive car, and I've got the economical but clunky car, then it really, what does it boil down to? It boils down to a choice between glamour and economy, right? I've got those two, those two values right, that I'm working with. Don't I need to decide then which of those values is more important to me? Do I care more about glamour or economy? Okay. Yes, I do. Okay. And I might even stand back and kind of deliberate about that, which of these things in the abstract is more important to me. But again, there doesn't have to be an absolute winner. I would say again, there can't be an absolute winner. It's I who settle my priorities. It's I who decide my priorities, who decide what's more important or less important to me now. I decide that. The things don't decide for me. Besides, I don't really have to stand back and make that deliberation. I might decide between economy and glamour just by deciding between the things that embody them, deciding between those two cars. By deciding between the two cars, I give priority to one of those values or the other. Okay. I do that myself. Now you might come back and say, well, don't I still need another criterion, another value that kind of stands above these two, glamour and economy, okay, so that I can compare them and decide which one is better, either compare them or compare the, the cars that embody those two values. Don't I need a third value to make the choice? I don't think I do. This is kind of a technical thing, but I think this is really important. I have all the criteria I need. Each of those two things is a criterion for comparing it with the other and vice versa. What do I mean? I mean, if I take just these two things, take any two sort of abstract values you want, but let's take glamour and economy. 
Well, I can compare them with respect to glamour. Which one is more glamorous, glamour or economy? Well, glamour is, obviously. It's a lot more glamorous than economy. But economy is a lot more economical than glamour. I can compare them. We can compare anything. That's what our minds are able to do. We can put any two things together and kind of relate them. Okay? So I have criteria, a criterion for choosing glamour over economy, namely glamour. But I also have a criterion for choosing economy over glamour, namely economy. I can use either one to make my choice. The point is, there doesn't have to be an absolute winner. Something making it necessary to choose one. I chose, I chose the glamorous car rather than the clunky. Did I have to? No, I didn't have to. But I had all it took in order to do that. Makes what I did is perfectly intelligible. If I choose the glamorous car, I choose it because it's glamorous, not because it's expensive. If I choose the clunky car, I choose it because it's economical, not because it's clunky. Right? My reason doesn't necessitate my choice because I also have a reason, a perfectly sufficient reason, for the opposite choice. So the, the idea is when I take, when I do what Thomas says, I take one thing, refusing another, I take one thing when I could very well take the other. I refuse it when I could have taken it. And I take the one when I could be refusing it. Okay? Again, nothing and nobody makes me make that choice or makes the choice for me. I make it. That's all. Still, you might, you might reply. You might have another rejoinder. You might say, okay, we grant that we desire happiness necessarily. Right? We said that. We can't help that. Everybody wants happiness. But there are some things that a person takes to be absolutely necessary for happiness. Right? For, for example, a Christian, I think I can speak about that, right? a Christian takes the avoidance of sin as necessary for happiness. A Christian, As Christian, a person can't possibly think that it's better to sin than not to sin right? as a Christian. Okay? And yet it's quite possible for a Christian to choose to sin. At least that's what they tell me. Right? quite possible. But if that's true, then it seems like there's only two possibilities. Either we do choose for no reason, kind of at random, or it is not we who make our choices in light of our own reasons, but something else makes our choices for us and kind of forces them upon us. You know, the devil made me do it or whatever. Of course, this brings us back to the question of moral goodness and moral evil, and the choice between them, which, as I said, adds a bit of complication to the story. Mm, I'll try to lay it out as quickly, as briefly as I can. The point is that Thomas doesn't think that the choice to sin, that's, he speaks that language, is an exception to the rule that we always choose for a reason, or that we always choose something that has a feature that makes it seem somehow better than the alternative, right? What's distinctive for him about the choice to sin is that the reason is not a good one. Right? And that what one chooses 
only seems better from a limited point of view. When Christians consider life as a whole and what is most, most worth aiming for, they see that sinful things are out of the question. Sinful things derail. They go off the tracks. They're not true alternatives. They're not truly choice-worthy, period. But we aren't always considering things from that point of view. Right? When we're in a situation that calls for a choice, it's up to us to take that point of view or not. Right? It's up to us to apply our beliefs about what is and what is not truly choice-worthy. And that can call for effort. But before we make that effort, something that in fact is sinful can pre present an attractive face to us. Right? From a certain limited point of view, taking it can seem better than avoiding it. And that's enough for us to be able to choose it. I don't mean that we can't help choosing it at that moment, we could very well stop, stand back, and consider whether, on the whole, this is a really viable option. You know, sometimes people do that. They actually do. Sometimes people resist temptation. Well, that exists. But sometimes they don't. That's all. Well, there's one other question, I think, um, that comes up here at this point. And that's the opposite of the question of being able to choose sin. Can there really be free choice without the possibility of sinning? Without the possibility of evil? Is there free choice in heaven? I'd say that on St. Thomas's view, heaven is where free choice really comes into its own. What we have here below is only kind of a shadow of it. Let me use an analogy for this. Think of that that heavenly musician, Mozart. And think of a, an amateur hack, like myself. I'll use myself as that. We both sit down at the piano. Right? Whatever Mozart plays, he cannot make a blunder. Right? He cannot commit a musical sin. Right? He just can't. It would kill him. Right? He can't do it. Right? Me? No problem. I do it all the time. Right? But now, which of us at the keyboard sees more possibilities? Hmm? Which of us can be more creative? Which plays with more freedom of choice? Well, it's obvious. Right? When he sits down, something, it's something new every time, and it's something amazing every time, and it's different. When I play, it's the same three riffs, right? and badly executed. Oh, it's just a myth. Right? For the most part, you know, sin is kind of boring. It's boring. It's always the same, almost always it's the same old stuff. Right? Almost always. It's not creative. You know what the hardest thing is? A lot of times for the priest in the confessional, I'll tell you a secret. What the hardest thing is? Staying awake. Right? Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. It's, I'm saying that sin is boring. Repentance is not boring. Repentance is not boring. Repentance can be amazing too. It can be really beautiful. Right, just read the gospel. It can be really amazing. Right? But the point is, you can't sin in heaven. They can't sin in heaven because they see God in his infinite goodness, and God is irresistible, and they can't possibly do anything that offends them. Right? They can't. Right? But they also see in him an endless variety of ways of imitating that goodness. Right? And they see a myriad of just amazing choices that they can make. 
We can't even imagine most of them. That's that's why I say there is real freedom of choice because they've got the real the good really in front of their in front of their minds. So to sum up this second part, a choice is an act of taking one thing and refusing another. The freedom of that act is a function of at least two things: the power to make comparisons and what I call the multiformity of goodness, the manifold nature of goodness. And freedom, if it's freedom to make bad choices, that involves this third factor, which is kind of a weakness, the fact that we don't always have in mind our own criteria for judging whether doing something that seems somehow attractive leads to where we really most deeply want to go. We could stop and consider those criteria, but we can also just go ahead and choose that thing. That's enough, that attraction. And then if we do it and the thing does lead us astray, well, we have only ourselves to blame. Now, I was going to add a a comment here about, um, as I say, an obstacle to free choice, which is materialism, the uh, the materialism that's kind of fairly widespread in our, our culture right now. I mean, kind of theoretical materialism, that everything is material, right? Because free choice is connected in almost everyone's minds, all the thinkers' minds, with something spiritual or immaterial in us. But maybe I should stop at this point, because um, that's kind of a side topic. We can get into it maybe if people are interested. But maybe I should just stop and we can have some discussion. I'm going to do that. <laughs>